Welcome to episode 31 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with host Matt Payne. That's me. Hey, this week's guest is a really cool uh, episode, man. Uh, I had a, a guy from Flickr that I've been following for several years now. Um, his name is David Swindler, and uh, he's based out of Utah, and he does mostly uh, workshops out there in Utah. And I really appreciate his work because he, he takes kind of some unique shots that a lot of people just don't get out to see very often. And and uh, I had a great time talking to him. He's a former uh, chemical engineer, so it was really fun talking to him about his path into landscape photography and, and especially as a full-time pro. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, art storefronts as a uh, web platform for his photography. Talked about uh, failure as a teacher, um, finding a good composition, and uh, my favorite part of the podcast was talking about um, impactful moments and landscape photography. Uh, just a reminder, um, I've been recording some bonus material uh, the last few weeks uh, for for availability for my Patreon subscribers um, for like a couple dollars a month you can help support the podcast and uh, get access to bonus material and stickers and t-shirts and all kinds of cool stuff so please check that out um, as always uh, please feel free to rate the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and reach out to me on the social medias uh, Instagram Twitter Facebook whatever Matt Payne photo Matt Payne photography thanks David Swindler, uh, it's so cool to have you on the podcast, man. Thanks for so much for coming on the show. Well, I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't know if you realize this or not, but uh, I've actually been um, a fan of your photography on Flickr of all places for for a lot of years. Yeah, I really like the Flickr platform. That's cool that we were able to connect on there. I had no idea. <laughs> I think Flickr is just a great community of photographers, very supportive and get a lot of good constructive feedback too. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I A lot of people dog on Flickr, but I, I don't know. I've, I have mostly positive experiences on there, but I think, I think if you're new to Flickr, it takes a while to build that community. Um, otherwise, you know, I think you mostly just get like, visit my blog or visit my photo stream or whatever so you know kind of like 500 px but yeah exactly well so man i feel like um it's funny my buddy kane i don't know i always bring my buddy kane up on the podcast but he was uh he called me the other day because he was traveling um out to uh utah to do some uh night photography and whatnot and uh he was i was asking him where he was gonna shoot at and and he was like, "Oh well, there's this arch that I've been really wanting to shoot that no one like I don't I couldn't find hardly any photos of it online, but I found this one shot of it. Um, and he's and um and he's like, it's by this this dude David Swindler, and I was like, yeah man, I know David I know David Swindler's stuff, and um, he's like, really like I've never heard him before, but it was a um, earthworm arch, out there or inchworm arch, yeah inchworm exactly yeah yeah yeah." yeah. And uh, so I, th- I think it's cool because um, I feel like you're kind of one of those guys that, uh, for whatever reason, um, you kind of fly under the radar just a little bit, um, but you produce a lot of really great photos. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, that's kind of been one of my weaknesses is uh, doing the marketing side and the self-promotion. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's yeah, something I'm man. trying to do better at, of course. It's because- tough. It's tough. Yeah, it didn't doesn't come naturally to me. I guess is how I should put it. Sure. Well, but, I mean, tell why don't you uh, just take a minute and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, like uh, where you live, uh, how you got into landscape photography, and um, I'm pretty sure you do this full time. So maybe talk a little bit about um, what that's like. Absolutely. So I was born and raised in the Midwest. 
And even from a young age, my parents had us doing a lot of things outdoors. Like they'd take us on the long family bike rides. My dad would take us out rappelling. We'd go on hikes in the woods. And that just really instilled in me a great love of the outdoors and of nature. On top of that, I also got involved in music at a pretty young age. Okay. And when my mom first started me on piano lessons, I hated it. Like she would have to cajole me nonstop to practice and I would throw the biggest tantrums. But one day I was listening to this CD of piano sonatas by Beethoven. And I was just amazed that someone could play like that. And so my mom got me the music and I would spend like hours just trying to work through one page of music. And of course, my piano teacher would tell me, you can't work on that. That's way above your skill level. That's what got me excited about it. And so it wasn't long after that that pretty soon my parents would have to beg me to stop practicing because I was one of those that would want to practice four or five hours a day. Oh, man. I'm sure all the other parents listening are like, oh, I wish my kid was like that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, from that, you know, I really learned the artistic appreciation of things, you know, how to really interpret things musically and how to bring out the emotion in the music. And so, you know, those two elements of my upbringing, you know, my love of the outdoors and adventure, and also my artistic side, this really ultimately led me to photography. Now, when I went to college, I studied chemical engineering. And throughout my education, you know, I learned a lot of the physics and the the science behind why our world works the way it does. And after I graduated from college, I went to work in the semiconductor industry. And my specialty there was photolithography. Okay. And what is, for people that don't know what that is, can you explain a little bit about what photolithography is? Absolutely. So photolithography is where we use very high-end optics and lasers, like the kind of lenses and optical equipment we're using. We're talking like $40 million per machine. So it's not a cheap thing. And we basically image the tiny little patterns that later become the circuitry on a microchip. And we're imaging that into photosensitive chemicals that later get developed away, much like you develop film in a dark room. And then it would go through like plasma etching techniques to kind of form the patterns. Okay. So basically, um, is that kind of how like um, computer processors are, are manufactured? Yeah, so my the company I worked for specialized in memory technology and memory chips. Okay. And so these are like the flashcards you're putting in your computer and like the DRAM chips that go in go inside. And then other companies like Intel, you know, they specialize in like the microprocessors, but they have very similar production methods. Okay, okay. So how did, so, how did how does How does that background and that education um, translate into landscape photography? (laughs) That's a very good connection. A very good question, because at first you'd seem that there is no connection between the two. But, you know, I've worked with great people. I had very technically uh, demanding and challenging assignments, and it was cool working at the forefront of technology. But it got to a point where I felt like I was stagnating. Like I didn't want to work in a cubicle anymore. I didn't want to devote super long hours uh, to fit the corporate paradigm. And one day I just decided, you know what? After a lot of soul searching, I decided, yeah, I need to just quit my job and try to do something a little bit more adventurous. Okay. With a little bit more risk to it. Yeah. And throughout that time, you know, I had been taking up photography. You know, of course, when I first picked up my camera, it came very easy to me because I really had that solid technical background from my education and my employment experience in semiconductors. Sure. So, you know, I progressed progressed quite rapidly and, of course, had to keep upgrading my gear year after year because it wasn't doing exactly what I needed it to do and so forth. And so I knew that when I quit, I wanted to do something with photography, but I didn't quite yet know what. And so I finally made the decision that I was just going to quit my job. And the 
turns out that the next day at work, they happened to announce a voluntary severance program. <laughs> and I said, all right, that's my sign. I got to leave. So I marched into my boss's office and told him, you know, I'm taking the package. I'm out. And that's amazing. That point, <laughs> like, okay, I got to really figure this stuff out. Because at the time I had no following in photography. Like absolutely no one knew who I was. And I didn't even know like where I was going to, start trying to form my niche. And where were, where were you living at, at that time? So I was up in Boise, Idaho at the time. Okay. Okay. And so I kind of started this exploratory phase where I looked around at different options. You know, I started doing some photo workshops up in Alaska where I'd take people to photograph polar bears. We'd drive up North on the Dalton highway and see the musk oxen and the caribou and all kinds of neat stuff. We'd do like brown bear tours uh, we did some stuff in the Pacific Northwest, and then I was also doing some workshops and stuff down in the Southwest. And the Southwest so, has long been one of my favorite areas of the world. Oh, absolutely, dude. And I would come down to the Southwest all the time. You know, I went to college here in Utah, and you know, that's where I first really started to fall in love with it. So <laughs> let me hold on a sec. So I just want to make sure I got this straight. So you're working as a chemical engineer, um, I'm assuming relatively successfully. And then, you know, you just decided, you know what, this is not for me anymore. And then they offer a severance and you're like, heck yeah, I'm going to do that. And then you just decided, boom, I'm going to go lead photo tours in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a radical change, isn't it? Yeah, like man. Like it seemed, I, at first I thought it almost seemed a little crazy myself. You know, here I was, a highly paid engineer, had a very stable paycheck every two weeks, you know, and, and then I knew I was at no risk of really getting laid off because at that point, after you've been there so long, you're really valuable to the company and stuff. But, you know, it just got to that point where it just wasn't exciting for me anymore. And I yeah, wanted no, to do I, something I understand that. And so that's what led me to, to forego that career and just give it a go and see what happened. And that was uh, 2014, just like three years ago? Yeah, so that was uh, tw early 2014 was when I left the company and, and started trying to figure out how I was going to make a living. <laughs> so how did you get from... Uh, Boise to Alaska to living in, um, I think you're in Kanab, Utah now? Yeah, so I'm in Kanab, Utah now. And what I found during that exploratory phase was that I had the most consistent demand for the desert southwest. Like people wanted to come here from all over the world. And th there's good reason why. It's like the diversity of landscapes we have in the southwest just never ceases to amaze me. We have lush green canyons with water flowing through them. We have some of the world's most spectacular geological formations and sandstone stripes. We've got odd-shaped hoodoos and rocks. You know, I can go on and on, you know, all the different arches and so forth. And it's all packed in there so densely. Yeah, it's that crazy. You'll right? never get bored down here. There's always something new to find. There's always something new to photograph. And so I came down here and I started doing a lot of exploration. Started looking around for spots that not everybody photographs and places that I knew we could pretty much have to ourselves. And after doing all that exploration, I decided I was going to base my company in Kanab, Utah. And the reason why was because Kanab is central to all the places I enjoy photographing the most. You know, to the south, we have the Grand Canyon. Uh, over to the west, we have Zion National Park. To the north, we have Bryce Canyon and Grand Staircase Escalante. And to the east, you know, we have the Vermilion Cliffs, where you have White Pocket, The Wave, Coyote Buttes, and Lake Powell and Glen Canyon. You know, these it's are kind of overwhelming. <laughs> it really is. And what I like to tell people is, you know, Kanab isn't necessarily close to any one particular thing but it's central to everything. Yeah. So it's made a lot of sense for me to, to put the business here in Kanab and start offering on-demand photo tours and workshops uh, to various places around my, my town. 
So I'm curious, um, as someone who's um, visiting all these places, you know, I'm, I, uh, I, uh, I was kind of struck by a post I read tonight on Facebook from Guy Tal, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure you know who Guy Tal is, right? Yeah, yeah. I really like his work, especially his abstracts. Yeah, man. So he posted this photo, you know, and if, um, you know, it was a typical guy towel photo, like super intimate, like, um, like kind of indescript, like you really weren't, you really couldn't, you didn't really know where it was taken, but like you could feel that kind of connection between the photographer and the location. And then in his description of the photo, uh, he went on to describe how at this location he was at, um, there was all of these people that came in that night that he was there with tripods, like photographers. And like, they were, they, they left trash everywhere. Like, um, they were just flying drones all over the place. And I'm just curious, like as someone who also, uh, leads workshops into these, these locations, like, have you seen the impact of the popularity of landscape photography um, on these locations that you love? Because I can tell by the way you talk about these places that it's that you have a deep personal connection to them. So I'm, I'm kind of just curious about what, what your take is on all of that. Yeah. And sadly enough, there is definitely becoming more of a human impact, on especially some of these spots that used to be lesser known that are now becoming much more popular due to social media propagation in the internet. And like a recent example was somebody used a blue pyrotechnic device out at White Pocket. Yeah. Probably trying to do some kind of uh, night photography with that or some kind of model shoot. And by using that device, you know, they, they stained the sandstone with this nasty blue stripe right in one of the most scenic spots of the whole area. And of course, you know, I was understandably irate about that and, and I posted on my social media, and I was just very happy to see how much support there was for everyone else that was also incensed by what had happened and how everybody wanted to catch who it was and start looking out for pictures of blue smoke from White Pocket. You know, just the show of support that we do have for our public lands by those of us who really appreciate it is great. Yeah, I agree. I, I've... Um... I've, I've, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, like just from the podcast and say how much they appreciate that I, you know, at least bring it up and talk about it. Um, but I, I feel like, I feel like we're kind of at a place now that, that we have to do more than just talk about it. Like there has to be some actionable, um, something that, that happens. I don't know if it's like, um, like a, a recognition of, of photographers that practice ethical standards or cause I don't think shaming people is going to get us anywhere, but I feel like if we celebrate the people that are doing it the right way, that like that's one way that we could get more people excited about following a certain ethics, ethical standard. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. And, and we also have to look at the social connection as well, because you know, if there is enough social backlash against something that you've done, you're probably not going to do that again. Because, <laughs> you, you know, think? We're, we're very social animals in that respect. And when we highly value what other people think of us. No, I agree. We Most people do, unless you're like a sociopath, right? <laughs> yeah, if you're a sociopath, then that's a whole different story. And so, you know, if we know that someone is doing things unethically, I think it's good to raise public awareness to that if they refuse to change their behavior through private means. You know, I think it's interesting, though. Like, I think there's some examples of some very famous photographers that have been publicly shamed um, by the photography community for their actions, and yet they still... Um, they still have success in terms of um, being able to sell prints, lead workshops, um, notoriety, fame. 
Um, and so that's where I'm, I'm like, I don't know if that that's enough because among photographers, sure. Like, oh yeah, that guy, he's that guy that did that. But among the kind of general population that he's just a famous photographer that uh, produces good, good photos. So mm-hmm. I feel like, I don't know. I don't I agree that like public that social thing has to happen, but I don't know if that's, that's going to get us there all the way. Yeah. Because, you know, I realize that everyone's going to make a mistake at some point in their career. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, we'll learn from that mistake. We'll own up to it. Oh, for sure. Realize what happened and it'll never happen again. You know, it's more of those people that continue to do the unethical behavior and, you know, I don't think there's an easy solution to that. Yeah, and- I don't I don't think there is either. I just, I wonder, um, you know, it's so funny. I'm going to sort of shift gears, but it's a good segue a little bit. Um, I, But it's kind of to my point a little bit. So um, before the podcast, I was kind of digging around on your website. And um, I noticed that you are using... Um, art storefronts um as your website yeah so that's my gallery with my personal photos if people do want to go jump on there and see like what some of my work is like it's www.lightandimpressions.com yeah and i'll put that i'll put that in the liner notes for sure but the reason why i brought that up is because i noticed there was this little like this little stamp of approval thing at the bottom of your webpage that said it says officially registered trusted art seller. Um, and it's, it's a kind of, it's an art storefronts thing. Basically just talking about like that people can trust that you're, they're buying from someone who actually is a legitimate business. And so the reason I, I bring that up as a kind of a comparison is I wonder if a similar uh, ethical standard could be created for people that lead workshop tours in terms of like, minimizing their impact on the environment like if you had a i don't know like if you had a stamp on your action photo tours website that said like i adhere to the 2017 uh work photography workshop tours ethical standards or something like that i don't know if do you think anything like that would make a difference because i mean at least if someone saw that they would ask what does that even mean you know what i mean yeah like if there is some a unified group we had, even just here in the U.S., that, you know, if someone's offering a workshop, you know, they'll do the due diligence to check that they have permits for all the areas they're guiding in, that they have the right liability insurance, the correct commercial auto insurance, uh, that they abide by good ethical practices and behaviors. Right, right, right. I think that could be a really good idea, you know, to have some stamp of approval from such an entity. Yeah, and people would know that they can trust them because so many people out there right now are offering workshops and they may not be following all the rules, but there's no way for the public to know that. Totally. Nor, nor does the public realize that they may not be protected going with some of those folks if they don't carry the correct insurance and so forth. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I don't do workshops is because <laughs> I mean, I don't have liability insurance or anything like that. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And it's I, not cheap either. No, it's not. It's like, it's kind of, yeah. I mean, it's a legit business if you actually want to do it the right way. Um, it's funny. I work in um, healthcare and healthcare is full of this kind of stuff. Like um, NCQA, which is like National Certification of Quality Assurance. Like you have to go through this rigorous kind of process to prove that you adhere to all these standards and then you can it's basically like a good, good housekeeping seal of approval to, to say to patients, like, yeah, we adhere to these standards. And, and that means that you can expect, you know, this level of quality and care. And I just wonder if something similar could be developed or should be developed um, for the landscape photography scene. I, I don't know, maybe I'm overthinking this whole thing. I just, I feel like every year you read more and more and more about um, all the stupid stuff that people are doing out there to the landscape. And it's, yeah. you know, it's just starting to 
piss some of us off. <laughs> to be it fair. really is like everyone feels like they have to one up each other on social media and do something totally new that may not be the best uh, thing for the landscape. Yeah, ex- exactly, man. Well, we I beat that drum to death. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I was curious, um, kind of that little segue. I've personally been looking at uh, art storefronts for a couple of years now, and um, I use Zenfolio. Um, I, you know, this is actually a topic I've never brought up on the on the on the podcast before about you know web platforms, and uh, uh, you know, art storefronts kind of bugs me probably like once a year, like trying to get me to sign up with them, and I'm curious what your experience with them has been like. Well. Part of the problem I've had is not I haven't had enough time to really dedicate to it mm-hmm. to like finish all the SEO and all the stuff that has to go on in the back end. Sure. Um, I really like the platform as far as how it displays art. Like someone can go onto my gallery website, they can pick an image they're interested in, they can click on the wall preview tool, view it at all kinds of different sizes. They can choose the room they want to view it in, whether it's a living room, a bedroom. They can even select the wall color. Yeah, they man, that's what, different... that's one of the things I liked about it too. Like, it seems like they got the the whole purchasing thing down. And by the way, for listeners, like, uh, <laughs> Art Storefronts is not paying me to talk about this. Um, I just thought it'd be a cool topic. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, that's one of the biggest impediments people have to buying art online is they just don't know what the finished product is going to look like. Right. And so they do a great job addressing that concern. And so, you know, once I, once I really get this rolled out and all the bells and whistles checked and, and completed, you know, I expect it will be a very good platform, you know, for people to purchase art without me having to own an actual physical gallery. Sure. Yeah. I, the reason, one of the reasons why I, I personally haven't spent uh, more effort on that aspect of things is, well, one, because my photos are terrible, but two. Oh, not true. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But but two, because I feel like print sales is um, is is kind of a dying a dying thing unless unless you focus the majority of your time kind of figuring out how to market to people appropriately, like. Um, I got the, I got the opportunity to meet um, a guy that owns a uh, owns a gallery in Estes Park. Um, his name's Eric Stensland. I don't know if you've seen his work, but he does really cool work, mostly of Rocky Mountain National Park. And um, and we got to talking about his gallery there, and um, you know he he has really kind of fine tuned the art of owning a gallery and selling prints. And it's, it's, it's much, much different than the art of taking photos. (laughs) Extremely different. And that's kind of what I've learned through the, through these last three years is that I have a lot of marketing skills to learn and implement. Yeah. And so I'm actively trying to do that. And that's kind of one of my goals this winter is to really improve my marketing, uh, try to get some different sponsorships and learn how to promote my art at the same time. Because the art buying crowd is a whole different subset of the population than our photographers. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, the people I'm taking out on tours, I'm helping them take the best photos they possibly can so they can print them out and hang them on the wall. And, you know, I'll even offer a service to them if they're interested because many people either don't have the post-processing expertise or the time to do it that if they want to send me like one of their raw files that I will post process it, get it, get it ready for like a fine art print and even deliver the final print to their home if they so desire. Huh. And so that takes a lot of the legwork out of it for them. Yeah. I mean, I've, I know a lot of people that, um, teach, teach workshops, um, you know, they'll help people do post processing and stuff like that, but that's an interesting kind of, uh, above and beyond kind of a service, you know, it's funny. Um, (laughs) my mom, um, God, God bless her soul. Uh, she, she's really into photography now. 
and you know so she's she's constantly asking me questions which is really fun you know like when your parents are asking you for advice um <laughs> but it's funny like um she's really good with the camera but like using you know lightroom and photoshop and like and like even she 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 was asking me the other day like i wouldn't even know how to print a photo like i'm like it, you just export the jpeg and publish it to a website that prints for you like it's not it's interesting how people uh haven't figured some of that stuff out on their own i don't and uh, you know my own mom so it's not like you know i think a lot of people are feel that way like it's kind of a mystery yeah and especially if you go into the real high-end printing techniques there's so much that goes on behind the scenes to make that look good. True that. Like how, how do you approach your sharpening workflow? What color space are you going to print in? What medium and what company are you going to use for that print? And All that makes a huge, huge difference. It does. It does. But I feel like, I mean, you probably, I'm guessing you probably did what I did. Like one day you decided you wanted to print a photo, so you did it. And it didn't turn out the way you thought it did. So then you started asking yourself, why the hell doesn't this look the way it looks on my computer monitor? And yes. then you, and then like slowly but surely you start to figure out all the ways to make it look better. Yeah. It's like anything else. Like you just need to take a, take a chance, make some mistakes and, and you know, like learn from your mistakes. <laughs> that's, that's the way exactly. I approach everything. I don't know. Like I, I always tell people, don't be afraid of failure. Because failure is the best teacher. That's how we learn. That's how we progress. Yeah. And so fail fast and learn from it and move on. It's <laughs> kind of my mantra. That's, that's so funny. Um, my, uh, my boss at work, that's like her new mantra too. It's fail fast. We need to fail fast. <laughs> so I say that, it like, it like strikes a nerve with me. I'm like, oh, I heard that like <laughs> 10 times today. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's all good, man. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Um, well, shoot, man. I'm curious. Uh, what do you got? Uh, what kind of stuff do you got coming up in uh, 2018 that you want to talk about? So what I do right now is I specialize in very small group uh, workshops and tours to many of these locations I mentioned before here in the Southwest. And over time, you know, I'm hoping to expand out, you know, possibly start opening another branch like up in the Pacific Northwest and so forth. But that won't happen until probably into 2019. But, you know, the things that I really focus on with my workshops is I like to give very individualized attention. You know, I'm not out there to take my own photos where when I have clients, you know, that need help and assistance. I give them my first priority. And then second is, you know, I take them to many off-the-beaten-path locations. They're hard locations to get to. And then third is I know the best times of the day to go places where we're going to find the best light and also the best months of the year to go to some of these spots. Sure. Like, for example, next or tomorrow, you know, I'm running a trip out to Eggshell Arch which is an arch that is very rarely photographed because it's on private Navajo land. But, you know, during the course of my explorations, you know, I was able to make the acquaintance of one of the leaseholders in that area. And he's agreed to take our group out tomorrow so we can photograph it. And there's just a very small window where you get the right light at this arch where it lights up underneath and you get that incredible glow. You know, that's just a few days. You have like a couple of weeks, you know, on, either side of the winter solstice period where that happens. Yeah, man. And so, you know, having that local knowledge and expertise, you know, I can get you to those spots and get you the right kind of light in the best possible photos. Yeah, totally. And, and so, yeah, going into next year, you, you know, right now I have another couple of people that also work with me and I've been getting so busy that I'm going to be looking for other photographers as well to, uh, to help me start running some of these tours so if there's anyone listening to the podcast that might be interested in such an opportunity, you know, they feel free to drop me an email or a message. I'd love to see your work and talk more with you. Yeah, man, I'm I'm sure there's plenty of them. I mean, I've probably had 
five or six people on the podcast that also do workshops in the Southwest as well. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's no, it's interesting. I, I talk a lot. I mean, I talk, I talk with a lot of people about, uh, workshops and I find it interesting that you guys are all able to keep busy because there's, (laughs) I feel like, I feel like there is a lot of people doing workshops nowadays, or am I just, am I just imagining things? Well, there are a fair amount doing workshops and like I have some local competitors that advertise that they're doing photography tours, but they're really not, you know, they just take people out in the middle of the day. Their tour guides don't know how to uh, operate camera gear or give photo advice. Oh, right. But, you know, people that go to their website, they see, oh, it's a photography tour, and they just jump on board. And so that's one thing I really try to educate people on is, you know, what is the difference between the mass market tour operator like those guys, you know, like what I do, you know, where I take out just very small groups, you know, we go out late at, or we stay out late in the evening to catch that gorgeous sunset light, or we go out in the middle of the night to do night photography, in some of the darkest, clearest skies that you'll find anywhere in the world. True that. And, you know, that's what, you know, that's what where the real difference lies. Now, obviously, yeah, there's a lot of people that offer photography tours. But, you know, in like the Kanab area, I'm the only one that truly does that. And so, you know, there's not a lot of direct competition that I have. And, you know, there's... You know, there's people that offer photography tours over in Zion, in Bryce Canyon, of course, and to a lesser extent, the Grand Canyon, Glen Canyon, those those kind of areas. But, you know, some of the things that I do that make me different is I take people to those spots they really can't get to with anyone else. Like I recently had a workshop where I took a group of five people out to the wave. And many of these people, they had been trying for years to get a permit to the wave, never could. But by going on my workshop, you know, they were able to finally fulfill that life dream they had. And on top of that, you know, they were able to go to South Coyote Buttes and White Pocket and all these other amazing locations during the five days we had together. So how do you, as a, as a workshop leader, how do you get a special permit for places like the Wave? Because I... I thought it was kind of a first come first serve like random drawing kind of a deal. It is. And I you know I put in for permits every month and when I get drawn, you know, then I can offer the workshop. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And then it's always in super high demand, so usually it fills up within an hour of me announcing it. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um one of like the- your buddy who who is mentioning like Inchworm Arch, for example, you know, that's a place that almost no one, nobody has heard of to begin with, let alone photographed, you know, the few groups that I've taken out there to do night photography and stuff, they, they just are so amazed at how beautiful these areas are. And they always tell me afterwards, like, Oh yeah, there's no way we would have found this or gotten there without you. You know, that's kind of the value that I add to the equation. And I love seeing the, the excitement on their faces, you know, when they have that aha moment and they're like, yeah, I just did something I've never done before and seeing something incredible and but was able to capture it. Yeah. And yeah. Go home totally. and share it with everyone. No, I get that. I, I mean, um, I've, I've taught a couple um, classes before like night photography classes and people it's, it's, you know, they've never done it before and, first time they see the Milky Way on the back of their 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 screen they're like crap in their pants you know it's it's a it's the real deal for sure man I I totally understand yeah. what you're saying they're just like little kids in a candy store kind of absolutely you know, kind of go crazy and it just reminds me you know of how I felt when I first experienced that for sure like I actually first experienced that as a at a pretty young age you know I was nine years old and I was out with my family on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. And I woke up in the middle of the night to go take a pee. And I walked outside the tent and my grandpa was sitting on the picnic table outside looking up into the night sky. That's and I awesome. sat down next to him and looked up and I was just blowing away. <laughs> yeah, dude. By how many stars I could see. 
I, was, I had no idea that was even possible. And at that moment, you know, I told myself, I absolutely have to come back here. This is incredible. And now it's something I get to do almost every day. And it's so cool being able to see other people's reactions when they first get to see it with their own eyes. And then it reminds me of that excitement that I first felt. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, switching gears a little bit, um, you know, I, I'm, I think you said you'd listen to a couple of the podcasts, so you, so hopefully you're ready for this one. But, uh, you know, based on the name of the podcast, um, F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen, I'm curious, what um, advice do you have for other landscape photographers um, that are listening? Yeah, so I think that's, you know, I really appreciate the collaborative nature of your podcast and the fact that, you know, we get to all learn from each other because that's really the best way to learn. You know, one of the things that I have to work with most with my clients and it doesn't matter whether they're a beginner, intermediate, or even more of a seasoned photographer, is, you know, you really have to focus on how do you find a good composition. And I often tell people, photography is a game of inches. Sometimes just moving that camera an inch or two in either direction, or going up a little bit higher or a little bit lower, can make all the difference between a mundane photo and a spectacular one. And in order to really fine-tune your compositional skills, you have to spend a lot of time doing it. Taking the photos, going home, evaluating them on the computer, asking yourself, why does this image work? Why does this image not work? In my case, going out and you're asking things. yourself, why doesn't this image work 99.9% .9 of the time? <laughs> <laughs> and then you hope that you can reduce that to 997 Yes, exactly. <laughs> get those couple keepers that are just like, amazing. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, the thing is, you have to keep trying. It takes very consistent effort. It's not something you're going to pick up in a month or two. You know, it's going to take a few years till you really feel like you've got a good grasp on it. And even myself, you know, sometimes I'll walk into a new location and it'll take me a while till I can figure out how I'm going to compose it, how it's going to work for me artistically. Yeah, yeah. And and on top of that, I often have to go back to that location perhaps several more times till I really feel I've got a grasp on it. So you can't expect to go to a spot one time and get like the best photos ever unless you're extremely lucky. You know, it's going to require you to go back again and again. Yeah, it's funny and, you say that. Um, I wonder sometimes if that's why um, people... Um, go to these iconic locations that they've seen over and over again because um, the composition when you get there is pretty obvious if you've seen enough photos of it. Um, like, for example, the first time that I ever went to Eloa Falls in um, Columbia River Gorge, I had seen a composition that probably everyone on, um, listening has seen from Mark Adamus. Um, where he has this uh, this pool, um, this little indentation in the rock where this pool of water collects and then reflects uh, the waterfall in it. And uh, it, it, it makes it more accessible to have that kind of first image in your mind in terms of um, connecting to a location. Because I'm with you, like sometimes I'll go to a location and I'm just like, scratching my head like I just don't see anything here that I can put into a composition but then you go back and two or three more times and you're like okay I can see now I can maybe add this rock or oh there's this there's this tree over here that I probably could kind of add to the scene to anchor it or or frame this part of the scene and I feel like that's one of the coolest things about landscape photography is that it's this it's this uh, magical kind of ethereal connection that you make with the landscape through exploring it visually. Yes, and I definitely agree with that. And you know, the other cool thing about landscape photography and what we do is that they re 
it really can create some defining moments in our life. You know, I just got done reading a book about uh, how we create impactful decisions in defining moments in our lives. And there's four things that really feed into that. You know, there's the first one is elevation. You know, when you go to that spectacular location and all of a sudden you're just like, whoa, this is like one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. That's a moment of elevation. The second thing is you have to gain some insight. So either you find a new composition you haven't seen before, or you learn some new camera techniques or skills you haven't put into practice before. You know, you're going to learn a lot about yourself and about your technique. And then moments of pride. You know, when you really got something good that you're really happy about, that's going to really stick with you in your mind. And then connection. You have to have a connection to the place and also a connection to maybe some of the other people you're with. You know, many people think of landscape photography as a solitary endeavor, but I often get more out of it, you know, when I'm with my clients or when I'm with other like-minded photographers. Because, you know, we'll kind of feed off each other and enhance each other's creativity. And we can see stuff that we may have not seen on our own. Yeah, man. And so, you know, landscape photography does fulfill all four of those things. And I think that's why people that get into it stick with it as long as they do. Because it does create those defining moments in our lives. Yeah, that's well said. That's That was cool. I, I really like that. Because uh, that, I agree, uh, uh the pursuit of landscape photography for me has also put me into some pretty amazing places and, and created some of the more memorable moments of my life. Um, you know, anyone who's listened to the podcast before knows that I'm really into climbing mountains, but, uh, when you, when you combine landscape photography and climbing mountains, for me, it's forced me to get up earlier, to push myself harder, and then, like, I've witnessed the most ridiculous moments, like sunrise from the top of North Eolis with, like, all these 13ers and 14ers around me lit up like Christmas trees, like mountain goats in every direction. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't have been in that moment if I hadn't taken up landscape photography. So I, that, that totally resonates with me, man, totally. Yeah, that's so cool. Like, that's one thing I, I really love, too, is combining the adventure aspect with the photography. Yeah, dude. Because I'm, I'm one of those two kind of adventure junkies, and I have to have a fair amount of that to be happy. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that. I, mean, I appreciate that. Was a, that's, that was cool. So who, um, who would you like to hear um, on the podcast? Well, you know, there's a few people that, you know, I really look up to and, you know, I haven't, in fact, I should probably pull up the list and see who's all on there. <laughs> but, you know, my buddy, Dustin LaFaver oh, yeah. up in Salt Lake area, he, you know, I go out shooting with him a lot and I highly admire his work. He has a very creative eye and he loves getting off the beaten path and trying new things. And Yeah, he, he, he posted a bunch of photos with um, he and his, uh, his, his wife or fiance at the time, like all dressed up in wedding regalia, like at the wave and stuff like that. Is that, am I thinking of the same dude? Yeah, that's him. <laughs> yeah. He'll do like crazy cool stuff like that. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> Those are the wedding pictures I want if I ever get married. Yeah, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Another guy that, you know, I, I like his name is Greg McCowan. He's down in Tucson. And he's a really good storm chaser. He knows how to read storm patterns and go after the big supercells, the dust storms, the lightning storms. Sweet. And then I just got back from Reflection Canyon with a guy named Ryan Smith. Oh, yeah. And he's a, you know, he, I don't know how the guy does it. He has seven kids, <laughs> a full-time job. But yet he gets out and takes the, some of the most amazing photos and he's going all over the place and also helping co-lead workshops with some other people. You know, I think that'd be an interesting one to have on your podcast of how he can balance his photography with all his other demands in his life. Seriously, that's intense. Seven kids. I have one kid and that I'm, yeah, that, I'm good there. <laughs> 
Another Utah photographer I really like is Phil Monson. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. And so look him up, you know, you'd, you'd really like his work. And then one of my, one person I've really learned a lot from, especially on the night photography photography front is Royce Bear. Oh yeah, totally. It's really fun like running into him randomly when I'm out with a group doing night photos and he's out there with a couple of his clients too. And you now we're really good friends that way. And Yeah, I haven't I, think, I haven't reached out to him yet, but he he was um he was one of the first people I put on my list cuz I've been following his work forever like um cuz I I'd say like 50% of my stuff is night photography and yeah, I, I really, really, really like his stuff, and he's he's just a really nice guy, too. He's incredibly nice, and he's a very good teacher at the same time. And, he, you know, his public speaking skills are great. You know, he'll put on public forums, you know, where he'll give, like, an introduction to night photography and stuff. Yeah, man. And then one other guy I'd put on the list is Bill Church. Oh, yeah, sure. And the thing I like about Bill is he's a lot like me in the fact he loves adventure and adventure photography. Like, you know, we both enjoy going out canyoneering and that kind of stuff. And, you know, taking your camera into very difficult environments to shoot in, you know, where you're swimming through deep water and then you got to set up a tripod and get your camera out. And, you know. Nice. You know, to me, that, that makes it really fun because it's not something just the run of the mill photographers can be able to get. Yeah, no doubt. I think one of the craziest things I, I did last year was uh, I brought my, my Sony a seven R two with all my lenses with me on the grand Canyon rafting trip. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so I had it all like uh, all in a uh, uh, Pelican case, like strapped down to the boat, uh right next to me on the boat so like i was constantly like opening the case closing the case opening the case closing the case it was <laughs> it was fun man uh, yeah it takes so much work just to get one shot oh it totally but... did <laughs> <laughs> i feel your pain there it's like oh man it's gonna take me 15 minutes just to get the shot but, but at the same time you're realizing you know this is a shot that not everyone's going to take and it's going to be it's going to open up hidden worlds to people that they haven't seen before. Well, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, thanks so much. Like, uh, I really appreciate it. The, you taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, I know you're a busy dude with all your, your, um, workshops and whatnot. So I appreciate, appreciate it a lot. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Matt. And I wish you the best of luck in your future podcasts and, Cool, man. Thanks. I'm excited to hear the next people you have on. Sweet.